Well, hello, Physionic Podcast. It is I, Nicholas Verhoeven, your host, your co-host, and your co-co-host. Well, let's see. Got a bunch of topics to talk about today. If you haven't noticed, (laughs) well, maybe the people on YouTube definitely haven't noticed, but the people on the podcast likely, or that listen, that just do the auditory version of the podcast, you likely have noticed that I am not posting five days a week anymore on the podcast. Uh, There are a number of reasons for that. One is I was just getting burnt out doing that, and I did that for, I don't, well, since the beginning of the podcast, so I don't know, like, uh, over a year, I was doing that. Yeah, over a year I was doing that. And it was successful for quite a while. And then after some time, <clears throat> because I was getting burnt out from from posting five days a week on that, as well as three times on YouTube, as well as five, five to eight times on Instagram and then Facebook and all that stuff, uh, the, the quality just wasn't there. I was, I was releasing lower quality uh, stuff. The information was certainly still high quality as it all is. Well, at least as I think it always is. But uh, and feel free to disagree on that. If you do disagree, then uh, give me some constructive fr- uh, criticism so that I can I can uh, consider your, your perspective and fix it. But yeah, so I just decided, well, you know, I, I, I do still want to do the podcast, of course, uh, because it allows me to be a little just looser. Uh, I don't have to I don't have to sit there and edit a ton and make sure that I'm uh, have everything succinctly put together. Uh, and so I'm still releasing one podcast episode a week. And with that, of course, it's going to be much longer because I'm going to be filling it with a lot of information on different topics that I find interesting and hopefully things that are going to be useful for you. And of course, there's going to be a timestamp so that you can, if you're listening to this or if you're watching this, uh, then you can just skip to whatever section that you want, or if you want to enjoy the journey with me and nerd out with me every week, then you can do that as well. I certainly welcome any sort of feedback or for you to just join me silently as well. Okay, so I have four different topics I wanted to talk about today. Uh, the first one is to talk about the five laws of health, which is a video that I released uh, a couple days ago that was uh, rather successful. Uh, people really seem to enjoy it, and uh, so I'll, I'll talk in more detail on those five laws. Uh, topic two is a war on cancer. It is all good news, so I'm pretty excited to talk about that as well. Uh, Topic three is something that a subscriber sent to me over Instagram and said that he was going to be covering it with his audience. And uh, I looked at the paper. He sent me a study and I decided to look at the paper and I decided to cover it. So that actual well-edited content is going to be releasing or maybe already has released by the time you're listening to this. Uh, But it is on ketones and... Uh, breast cancer. So how do ketones from like the ketogenic diet, for example, or long-term fasting, how do those impact breast cancer? And the final topic is a bit on, uh, I've mentioned this in previous podcast episodes relatively recently, 
that I need to do a qualifying exam to advance to candidacy in my PhD. So that being the case, I need to essentially design a study of my own. And while I'm not going to go into the details of what I'm, I'm doing, I am doing a lot of reading in a particular area, and that area is creatine, and specifically on its impact on muscular hypertrophy. I'm not going to go, like I said, I'm not going to go into any of the details of like how I'm designing this study. I will certainly go into it uh, if it's approved, because I still I'm, I still need to make sure that it's okay, it's it meets the standards, because you know it's physiology and and, and molecular focus, so it can't. I can't sit there and uh, just do, I don't know, a bod pod like or a, a DEXA scan for body composition. It needs to be uh, something, you know, including cellular work, including uh, more molecular mechanisms, things like that. So, uh, but if it gets approved and if that I'm allowed to use that as my defense uh, or as my my qualifying examination. Uh, then, or the focal point of my qualifying examination, then uh, after that is over, then I will surely tell all of you about it. And uh, it'd be cool to get your opinions on it. So anyways, I'm going to talk a little bit in topic four about creatine on hypertrophy. Okay, so that said, that is the introduction. Uh, if you're not fam familiar with who I am, my name is Nicholas Verhoeven. I am a PhD student in molecular medicine. I have my master's in exercise physiology and I was a certified, although I didn't recertify myself. So I guess I, I, I'll start qualifying as I was a ACSM certified personal trainer. I chose not to recertify because, well, I haven't trained anyone in a long time because uh, I just didn't bother. <laughs> uh, it's not It's not really my gig, not really my thing. Uh, although though it is something that I study, one of the aspects that I study. So with that said, topic number one, five laws of health. Now this is something that came to me because I was reading a book, well, I was, I'm reading a, a physics book uh, that is Stephen Hawking's uh, A Brief History of Time. And it's an incredibly complicated well, it's a complicated set of ideas in physics because it's not something that comes innately to me. I have to sit there and really think about a lot of the things that he's mentioning in that book. And it's an incredibly popular book. It's one of the most famous physics books of all time. And I'm learning quite a bit, but one thing that I've noticed is that there are laws, and this is something that I knew already, that there are laws in physics uh, that apply to essentially everything that we do. You know, if that's uh, quantum mechanics, if that's general relativity, uh, if that's gravity, New Newtonian gravity, uh, you know, whatever, where, uh, what was I reading today? Planck's constant, I learned about that. So there's a lot of different areas and we apply these laws, we apply these principles and then they just, and if they hold up, then they continuously can be applied and they just work every single time. And then I thought to myself, well, is it possible to have the same thing in health? Now, the problem with that is that while there certainly is disagreement in physics, I think most people recognize certain individuals like 
Albert Einstein. They recognize that his theories are correct, <laughs> that they work, they explain our uh, world, and therefore we can make a lot of predictions off of, off of that going forward. So, but the problem is, of course, with health, that there's so much disagreement. I mean, you, you put a, a, a person who's vegetarian or vegan in a room with a person who eats a carnivore diet, and they will, I mean, of course, I'm generalizing, but um, taking two extremes on in either group and putting them in a room together, they'll end up screaming at each other because they disagree so much. So I was wondering what could individuals like that agree on that is related to health. And so I came up with five different things that I definitively feel everyone or at least almost everyone can agree are beneficial towards health. So the first one, and if you haven't checked out the video, it's an eight minute video. It's short, it's all edited and all that. So um, you won't have to look at my face. You can just go through the video itself and uh, it'll, it'll, it's got a bit of a poetic dialogue to it. At least I like to think that it has a poetic dialogue and uh, hopefully you appreciate it. Uh, hopefully you like it. Uh, I got some great feedback on it, so uh, so thank you for for anybody who did watch it and gave me feedback on it. It was uh, it was fun to make. Uh, I can't do it every week. I can't do it every day, but it is something that I'll I'll be doing here and there. Uh, actually, I already wrote my dialogue for my next one because people asked for another video of this this nature. So I I already finished the dialogue for the next one. So there you go. Uh, the first one was weight, and really my point here was that weight management is incredibly important. Uh, it's probably the greatest general indication of health. If you can maintain a healthy weight that's at least relative to your height, uh, then you will be overwhelmingly more healthy than if you are overweight or underweight. And that's not that dramatic of a statement. Uh, just saying if you maintain your weight or maintain a healthy weight, I should say, regardless of how you do that, you're going to be healthier than if you were overweight or if you were underweight. Not a shock. So weight, maintaining a healthy weight, of course, helps with, you know, making sure that your uh, cholesterol levels are lower and lowered, uh, your triglyceride levels, your blood glucose, blood sugar levels, your insulin levels are normal. I mean, all kinds of different markers are going to be highly uh, benefited by having a stable, healthy weight. The next one that I covered was cardiovascular motion. That's another one that, as you're hearing these, I hope that you're thinking, oh yeah, obviously, that's something that everybody can agree on that is important to, to, to health. And I think the first one is really the most controversial, the weight management, just because I say that regardless of what nutrition protocol you use to, to achieve that healthy weight, the healthy weight alone is a massive benefit to your health regardless of if you did it if you're a vegan and you watch somebody else reach reach that the same goal but using a paleo lifestyle while you may disagree with their paleo lifestyle of reaching it the fact that they reached it means that uh, within a range you're going to have roughly the same 
health benefits from that healthy weight. Now, that doesn't include, you know, micronutrients and all these other factors that, that could certainly play a role. So anyways, the next one is cardiovascular motion. And it, I mean, it's kind of self-explanatory, right? If you run, if you row, if you bike, if you jump rope, whatever it might be, uh, if you just get your heart pumping in your lungs, exhaling and inhaling, <laughs> didn't, didn't really have a short version of saying uh, breathing, and get your lungs breathing, um, then you'll get uh, better health outcomes. It clears out cholesterol, uh, decreases LDL cholesterol, decreases VLDL cholesterol, uh, decreases, I believe it decreases IDL, so intermediate uh, cholesterol as well, and it inc tends to increase HDL cholesterol, high-density lipoprotein cholesterol. So in that regard, cardiovascular motion or cardio is uh, extremely beneficial to health. So not much else to say there, just kind of long duration exercise is beneficial, especially for the circulatory system, the cardiovascular system, and uh, the pulmonary system, the lungs and the heart, as I mentioned. The next one that I had was strength. So just maintaining a certain level of strength is uh, unbelievably beneficial. Just knowing that, you know, if you're you know, 50 years old, can you can you maintain that strength when you're 70 years old maybe not exactly but you can get close uh and if you can maintain a high degree of strength and i'm not talking about world athlete we're talking about health here we're not talking about uh performance if you can maintain a high degree of uh strength throughout your life, you're going to be far, far better off for it. Uh, you're going to be able to do essentially everything that you want to do. And that's that's unbelievably important when it comes to the quality of your life. I mean, imagine the mental health struggles that come from losing your strength, losing your ability to do anything uh, related to your, to your body. If, if for some reason you suddenly... Well, I mean, just aging in general. If once you get up to, you know, 80 years old, whatever it might be, there's going to be a point where you you have extreme difficulty just getting up out of a chair. And that's a really scary prospect. Now, of course, there are things that you can do against that. Uh, and that really protects your ability to move. But also protects your independence and also protects your mental health and you still feel like you're vibrant and really uh, living life at the peak that it should be for you know relative to your to your age and strength is a remarkable process because unlike cardiovascular motion wherein you would have to dedicate I don't know maybe 30 minutes a day to doing a lot of exercise over time albeit relatively simple, kind of repetitive, strength is something that you can improve in five minutes, 10 minutes of exercise. And you can see some pretty substantial increases in your strength, especially if you focus on your legs. That's, uh, that's one area that especially people who are elderly should be focused on. 
So I thought strength was was one that's certainly important. And again, keep in mind, I'm not talking about becoming an Olympic athlete. I'm not talking about becoming a power lifter. Just being able to move boxes, you know, really simple day-to-day things. Having that focus just a few minutes uh, every day or every other day can have dramatic overall overarching uh, positive impact on your bones, your musculature, your connective tissue. Those are all things that I mentioned uh, in, in the video as well. The next one is range of motion. So I do mention that strength, while strength is unbelievably important as I described, if your strength is limited, if you're watching this on video, to moving six inches forward and six six inches back like that's you you can't you don't have much motion you don't have an ability to to extend and to flex your musculature and to to move your body as it's intended that can be incredibly discouraging so you may have the strength within a short range of motion but you know that at one point in your life you had a far greater range of motion. You were able to really move around and had this flexibility about you. Then that can be incredibly discouraging. So trying to maintain your range of motion is is also really really important. I mean, think of like kids, for example. Kids have are incredibly pliable. They just have this. The, range of motion they they can move anywhere they they can they can be sitting on the ground for three hours and then just get up and be perfectly fine no aches no feeling of of age or anything like that and and over time uh we just kind of lock up almost so and but we can still fight that we can of course do different flexibility tests and do all kinds of like yoga i mean you can do a, a, a wide range of different things to enhance your range of motion and you could do that in five to ten minutes every day as well so these aren't massive uh undertakings it's not like you have to spend an hour in the gym for each thing that i'm mentioning here and the last one was environment and i thought this one would add an element that i think almost everybody universally could agree on some people might add some things to this list and others uh, would, but I think for the most part, people would agree that environment as a whole has a serious impact on our health. So the reason for that is because something like environment, think of like radiation poisoning. Uh, when you go in for to kill cancer, uh, when you go into the hospital and they do, ra- you have to go through radiation, uh, you know, that's, that's not very beneficial for the cells that are intact and healthy. Uh, unfortunately, it also damages those cells. It's, that's why radiation is so crude. And the same is true if you think of like the things, I mean, just in history, uh, Chernobyl, when uh, that nuclear uh, power plant had its issues, uh, to put it mildly, Well, unfortunately, the people that lived around the area, they suffered from the environment. And I can guarantee you it didn't matter if they were eating vegetables and and eating their right amount of protein and making sure that their macronutrient composition, they were vegan or they were carnivore diet or they were, you know, whatever, my paleo, whatever it might be. 
uh, or they were fasting 22 hours a day, that radiation poisoning uh, just blew up their their genetic material. I mean, just caused mass mutations within their genes, which ended up leading to, well, either death or uh, it led to some uh, incredibly unwelcome changes to their lifestyle uh, because of physical manifestations that would, would end up appearing. I mean, one of them would easily be like cancer, uh, see substantially increases in cancer rates. So your environment is going to make a huge impact. Uh, just being around like clean water is another great example. Uh, if you don't have access to clean water, that is a factor for your health. And in certain respects, your body can fight back against that and be, okay, you know, that's, that's fine. We can deal with certain pathogens that might be in the water. But with other pathogens, uh, they're going to wreak havoc. And then you need to go and get medicine to specifically deal with that pathogen. Or that pathogen is powerful enough if it's a bacteria or a virus or some other pathogen, it's going to have some serious implications and you could potentially die just from your environment. Again, regardless of the fact that you've been sticking to your nutrition and that you've been working out and taking care of your general health, uh, your health can take a, a sudden dip just because you're exposed to something. And that's really the, the big takeaway point here that what you're exposed to, if you can limit the things that you're exposed to that are detrimental to your health, that will certainly massively help your health in general. So that's essentially what I have to say for the five laws of health. Hopefully that get anybody who watched the video, hopefully you get a little bit better sense of what I was trying to get at there. Uh, but I mean, nobody complained that I, I didn't explain things well enough during the video. So uh, I'm glad. And, uh, you know, if you have questions, feel free, feel free to comment. I, I'm always happy to, to enter some dialogue and, and get some feedback from you guys. So the second topic that I had in mind was uh, the war on cancer. So there's actually some really good news. I usually talk about, I mean, I talk about cancer quite a bit, but uh, that's always to cover a particular study or to, you know, say, hey, cancer's bad. <laughs> Real shock there. But the the war on cancer, I think for the Instagram people, I have something like war on cancer, the, the benefits, or we're, we're winning the war, something along those lines, something dramatic, clickbaity. That's not really clickbait because there was a study, a retrospective study looking at cancer rates and the deaths from cancer. Uh, since 1991, so this this they look back from 1991 to 2017, and cancer rates were increasing all the way up to 1991, and cancer deaths were increasing up to 1991, according to this study, and this was presented by the American Cancer Society. And What's really, really encouraging is that there was a nearly 30%, nearly 30% drop in cancer deaths between 1991 and 2017. That's a huge deal. That's a, that's a huge deal. 30% is not a small margin by any means. And 
they saw drops or the yeah the the researchers saw drops in all of the four major cancers the cancers that kind of dominate all other cancers that's not to to diminish any of the other cancers cancer is terrible regardless of what type it is but the four major ones that all declined in terms of uh, their lethality was lung cancer which i guess that's not too much of a shock because obviously we have the anti-cigarette and all that stuff that was really hammered uh, throughout the the 90s and even before then as well uh, with greater bands and things like that uh, prostate cancer was another one breast cancer was another one and the last one was colorectal cancer so all four of those cancers declined and not only that uh, i think it was up to a two percent drop that occurred i believe in like 2015 or 2016 or 2017. <laughs> maybe i'll just start from 1991. maybe it was 1991 maybe it was 1992 no it, it was something like 2015 2016 2017 like one one of those years there was a two percent drop which doesn't sound like a lot but that is they said that's the biggest drop in cancer deaths they've ever seen wrap your head around that that they've ever seen what a time to be alive <laughs> that's that's crazy and in absolute numbers that's almost three million cancer deaths that were eliminated so as in not three million people died as in three million people survived uh, these these different cancers that's a huge huge deal and to just to add this a little bit more in perspective keep in mind that the population continues to grow so if the population continues to grow it goes to reason that you're going to have higher levels of disease not because the population necessarily gets less healthy but because you have more people therefore the chances increase uh, just because not Again, not per person, but within the population, you're going to have more disease that occurs. But even so, even if the population increased from 1991 to 2017, again, just where this study looked at, you still see a decrease, a massive drop in cancer deaths. So really, really cool. The reasons why? Well, they don't know. I mean, you can't, you can't just know that because you're looking at several decades there uh, so you can't pinpoint oh this was it but you could certainly speculate you could find different associations and your guess is as good as mine I would imagine things like well like I mentioned with lung cancer uh, just decreasing uh, cigarette smoke secondhand smoke banning it from public areas uh, making sure that people who well diagnosis of cancer i think that's probably a big one with better diagnostic tools we're able to catch it earlier on so maybe finding it in stage two as opposed to finding it in stage four uh research in general shout out to my research homies uh yeah i mean we we do a lot of research tons of research at my school and certainly at other schools all, all over the world and that research is getting better and better and better and I think, you know, speaking to that, I find that really, really exciting because it, you hear about these individual stories of how, you know, research has figured out, may have figured out this, may have figured out that, or 
they, f- they do figure out this small thing, but it's in mice, or they figure out some other small. It's just these, sm- these teeny tiny puzzle pieces that we're putting together, and we're just collecting information, collecting information, and sometimes it feels like we're not doing anything with that information, but we are. <laughs> it's, it's, it's showing itself in the clinical world once you pass that information, that research on to the MDs, the MDs then can take that information and actually do something with it. And they're doing something with it. I mean, no doubt that is a factor, maybe even a major factor for why we see this drop in cancer rates. So, but there, there are certainly others. Maybe education is another big one. Uh, you know, like breast, breast checks. I'm, uh, I would imagine that's gotten uh, better over time. Prostate exams have gotten better over time. Like those kinds of things, they matter. Uh, colorectal, just going through and uh, getting, getting a check for that as well. Like there's all, well, really three of them are, are easily, you can go to your, to your doctor and get a checkup. And it might be as simple, I mean, this is probably a smaller factor, but it might be as simple as something like, and I, I remember when I was studying psychology that they talked about how men don't like to go to the doctor's office uh, because, well, they think that, you know, whatever the issue is that they have, it's something small, it doesn't need to be looked at, uh, they're embarrassed, they think they can deal with it on their own. I mean, there's all there's a plethora of different reasons. But maybe the, the stigma of going to the doctor has decreased over the last, you know, 15, 20 years. So maybe, or that's not even 15, 20 years, that's like 30 years. So that's, I mean, any one of those factors, as well as probably like 500 other factors, uh, could all be a reason for why we see this decrease in cancer risk, but, or cancer death. But that is that is so, so cool. And that's such a great piece of information that's, that's now out there. So then moving on to topic numero trois. Uh, number three, ketones and breast cancer. So I was sent this, this paper and I found it interesting enough for me to cover. Actually, I have my notes here. And it's pretty simple. I'm not going to go like panel by panel like I, I did with the journal club and whatnot. I'm just going to kind of generally describe it. So these researchers wanted to find out if they if they co-culture two different cells. One of them is a cancer cell, it is a breast cancer cell, and the other cell is a fibroblast or a support cell that is typically found in the body. Fibroblasts serve a number of different functions, but apparently one of those functions is in a tumor specifically, they start to uh, release ketones. So not only are you getting ketones from the liver, uh, you're also getting ketones from these fibroblasts, and that would probably be within that microenvironment. Microenvironment being, uh, instead of looking at the body, you're looking at within a few centimeters. You know, within uh, a particular tumor mass, that would be a microenvironment. So if these fibroblasts are found in there, they could be releasing ketones into the environment, the nearby environment of these cancer cells and these cancer cells may be reacting. So they artificially did that by co-culturing them together. They used this breast cancer line as well as these fibroblasts. 
And then they had three different conditions for the fibroblasts. Well, I'm just going to talk about two of them, really. So they had a control condition wherein they didn't overexpress the ketone-producing enzymes. So to produce ketones, you need these enzymes. And if you have more of the enzymes, well, you can imagine, then you can presumably make more of the ketones. And what they found in the past is that these fibroblasts that are found in the uh, in the tumors, they do overexpress these these enzymes, these ketone synthesis enzymes, and therefore the idea is that then they're going to have elevated levels of ketones that they can give to the cancer cells, and the cancer cells will then take that and then grow or uh, you know somehow react to the ketones. Now this is this flies in the face of some other research that other people have talked about. Uh, which which was a pretty big controversy for like uh, maybe like three or four years ago uh, where they talked about how ketones can eliminate cancer well you know cancer cancer isn't just a metabolic disease there's a lot more that goes to it it's not like you can you can starve out the cancer in very in rare situations you can in rare situations you absolutely can but that is not true of all cancers. It's not even true of the majority of cancers. So they're looking at a, a single breast cancer cell line, which is typically not what you want to do. You want to look at a number of different cancer cell lines, but I imagine that they only used one because they just wanted to either A, have a proof of concept that this does occur, or B, they couldn't find another, another breast cancer, another cancer that reacted to the ketones uh, in this regard. And therefore, they were just like, well, we're just going to show what we have. Uh, so, which is perfectly fine. That's, you know, it's not a knock on them. You just have to accept the information and then you have to make sure, okay, well, we would like to see this in other cancer lines. And if it's not reproducible, then well, then it's not reproducible and we can just dismiss it until it is reproducible. So they had the normal fibroblasts that did not overexpress these ketone enzymes and therefore did not release a, a ton of ketones. And then they had fibroblasts, two different conditions, but I'm just going to lump them into one because it doesn't really matter in terms of telling the story. And these ketones, uh, these, these fibroblasts, excuse me, uh, were genetically modified. So the, the uh, researchers genetically modified these fibroblasts to overexpress, to have far more of these ketone enzymes resembling the ones that might be found in a tumor. And, well, what did they find? Well, when they co-cultured them, again, where they put the cancer cells on a plate plus the fibroblast from each condition on two different plates, so uh, normal fibroblasts with cancer cells, these MCF7 breast cancer cells, and then in another plate they had the overexpressed or the genetically modified fibroblasts with the same cancer cells, MCF7 breast cancer cells. And then they took images to figure out, you know, what are some of the differences. So some of the differences were like increases in mitochondria. There were greater, uh, higher amounts of mitochondria in the cancer cells when they were co-cultured with the genetically modified fibroblasts. So that was interesting. Does that really tell us anything? No, it doesn't. Uh, but it does tell us that there's a change in mitochondria. That could be uh, because of an increase in ketones. 
And then they looked at the number of cells, so now we're getting to some actual information, and the numbers of cells were increased with the overexpression of the fiber, uh, overexpression uh, fibroblasts, the genetically modified fibroblasts uh, did lead to greater levels of these uh, breast cancer cells compared to the control condition or the normal fibroblasts. Then they looked at tumors. They also added these into uh, tumors and allowed them to grow X amount of time for a number of weeks. And uh, this was in MDA, MB231 breast cancer cells. So I guess they did use another breast cancer line. But this was in the tumors themselves, not in a uh, cell culture and or on a plate, I, I guess I should explain. And what they found is that, again, there were increases in the actual uh, size of the tumor, but also the weight of the tumor. So the density of the tumor likely increased quite a bit as well. So, you know, they're just building more evidence here that that is the case, that with this uh, fibroblast overexpression. So then and the final experiment that they did, they, they injected cancer cells that were genetically modified. So we're no longer talking about fibroblasts in this situation. They've genetically modified these cancer cells to overexpress ketone breakdown enzymes. So instead of ketone producing enzymes, these cancer cells break down the uh, the ketones. And that makes sense because they need to use it for energy. So if they overexpress, they overexpress two different ketone breakdown enzymes. And they found that with one of them, there was no effect uh, in terms of the cancer cell metastasis or spreading. But on the other one, which is ACAT12, uh, they did find that it does lead to much greater uh, metastasis as a result. So all of these is several different lines of evidence that uh, the overexpression of these ketone enzymes in fibroblasts uh, or, and, and that there's a link with ketones that this leads to a greater metastasis, greater growth, uh, greater number of these cancer cells as a result. Now, that said, <laughs> there's a huge, huge gap in this paper, which I do mention uh, in the content that I that I released, I don't know when this is going to release, if it's the day after or the day before, but uh, there's a huge issue in that uh, the cancer cells were never, what when they were co-cultured with the fibroblasts, although they overexpressed the enzymes for the ketone production, you can't assume, you could never assume that that necessarily means that ketone levels were higher in the media. So you don't actually know if the ketone levels themselves were higher up. The only way to test that is by actually testing the media. You have to actually test the liquid to make sure that the ketone levels are indeed elevated. And unfortunately, they did not do that. So that is a huge hole, <laughs> but if I had to give my, my two cents, I would imagine that yes, there were elevated ketone levels, but it's just such a simple thing to do, incredibly simple thing to do, that it seems kind of silly that they didn't do it. Now, I will say that during in the paper, uh, they do mention that they had done that experiment before, as in artificially adding 
higher levels of ketones and they found the same effect. But you, what you're really trying to do is make the connection between the fibroblasts doing it and the cancer cells, not just generally that ketones are increasing uh, this, this cancer metastasis. So that is a factor, that is a bridge that they just never built and they should have built it. Uh, I will say I tentatively agree with them. However, I absolutely would have loved to have seen that and I reserve the right, well, I always reserve the right to back out of this statement if new information presents itself. But uh, it was a relatively simple paper, it was okay. Uh, to to go through and of course I encourage you to check out the more polished content where I actually show you the the pictures and stuff like that and kind of explain what's going on in more detail uh, as as that's out that'll probably be I mean that'll either be out tomorrow when you're listening to this or it's already out and if it is you can just check out the description box and you'll you'll, you'll find it okay so that said the final topic that I wanted to cover is creatine on hypertrophy. I don't have a whole lot to say here, but I did want to cover it regardless. Uh, you likely are aware that creatine is a popular supplement because it helps, initially it helped with performance when it came to lifting performance, uh, being able to eke out, you know, maybe an extra repetition or two when you're, when you're lifting weights. And that is certainly true. Uh, the mechanism for that is just an, a recycling of the cellular energy. I'm not going to go into it right now. Um, but it's just a recycling of the cellular energy and allows the energy state of the cells to be of the myocytes of the muscle cells themselves to be a little bit higher and therefore you have more energy to do every process that needs to happen. Uh, if that's lowering the hydrogen concentration, or yeah, lowering the hydrogen concentration, therefore increasing the pH within the cell uh, to reduce acidity. Man, I went down, up, down. Uh, but all of those are true. Uh, that is incredibly important so you don't feel as much of a burn and therefore you feel like you can you can eke out that last repetition that you normally might not be able to. Uh, it uh, in, in the same vein, it could also increase the protein synthetic machinery. Who knows? The bottom line is that we don't actually know. Uh, we know that we know the energetic aspect of creatine. That is well established and we fully understand that. And we know that creatine has a positive impact on all kinds of different tissues. It's a, it's a cool supplement. Well, it's a cool molecule, I should say. Um, you don't have to supplement with it, but it's a cool molecule. And your body produces it. It does a good job. Uh, created by the liver which is then exported out of the liver and then sent to all your different cells. And I think it's like 98% ends up in your musculature and the other 2% ends up in a variety of different tissues with some of it being in your brain uh, to your benefit, to the benefit of your brain. But the big question is creatine, does it have a direct impact on hypertrophy, muscle growth? And the truth is, we don't actually know. Uh, there are a number of studies that say yes, and there are other studies that say no. So what do you do with that information? Well, you try and investigate. You try and figure out, 
does the creatine molecule have a direct impact? And by direct impact, I mean you take it and you literally grow some more musculature. Obviously, I'm not talking about you're going to be gaining like 15 pounds like you might with a steroid cycle. I'm talking like a milligram, like milligrams. I'm not talking about anything extreme. Creatine isn't a steroid for a number of reasons. Uh, it doesn't act like a steroid. A steroid uh, moves across the phospholipid membrane. Uh, it ends up finding itself into the nucleus, usually for something like testosterone, and will then act on the DNA itself. Creatine, uh, to my knowledge, does not do that. It has to go through a particular uh, port, has to go through a particular gate that allows it into the cells, and uh, it just doesn't act in the, in the same regard. But uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that it can't have a direct impact on, let's say, increasing protein synthesis directly without the stimulation to the musculature. Or maybe it requires the stimulation of the musculature through something like exercise, and then it has an additive effect to that stimulation of protein synthesis. It may decrease on the back end protein degradation. Who knows? Uh, that could be another factor. That could be the reason why we see uh, greater increases in lean body mass and muscle mass with the supplementation of creatine. So there, there, there are a number of different ways. And even within those, I mean, those are kind of physiological outcomes. But once you get into kind of the molecular aspects of it, you know, what are some of the, the, the cascades? The, how are these proteins communicating with one another using creatine to then lead to this to this greater hypertrophy of the musculature and we don't know that we don't even know if it actually does uh, impact hypertrophy directly or if it's just because you get to knock out a little bit more volume uh, in in your sets that may be the reason and finally the last question i really had in mind was that is it all water weight when we when we take creatine, we will gain weight. If you are, uh, if if you get a reaction from creatine, you will gain weight. I mean that's just how it works because with more of those molecules going, more of those creatine molecules going into your uh, muscle cells primarily. With that, there comes a flow of water. H2O molecules have to follow uh, to make sure that the uh, levels of water intracellular, intracellular, intracellularly are uh, equivalent or just are uh, balanced, I guess I should say, to what they are extracellularly, so outside of the cell. And so with that, you see increases in, in water. So water within the cell. So uh, is that the reason why we see increases in lean body mass? Because are the technologies that most of these studies are, are reporting that you see increases in lean body mass, you see increases in muscle mass, are those studies using techniques that aren't sensitive enough to figure out if the increase in lean body mass is because of water weight or because of actual myofibrillar uh, or uh, contractile units within the musculature being synthesized and leading to a bigger muscle. 
That is a question that also really needs to be answered. So, and with that, with the increase in water entering the cell, it's also possible that that has an osmotic pressure that leads to the cell stretching a little bit. And we do know that through mechanosensation, uh, through the sensation of stretch, that the muscle cells can signal for greater protein synthesis. So maybe that is the mechanism for how creatine may have an impact on hypertrophy. There are a number of questions that even though we have so many studies on creatine, we still don't fully understand uh, the mechanisms for how it works. Although we are aware of many, many of the benefits of uh, that, it, that it confers on all kinds of different tissues. So those are some more so just thoughts that I'm having, some things that I'm mulling over. And like I said, they are related to, to uh, a bit to my qualifying exam, which again, I'm not going to go into uh, in any detail here until, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, that is something that I have approved and I go through that whole process and I can then talk about in more detail. But some questions, you know, just some, some interesting possibilities of, of how creatine may or may not be leading to increases in hypertrophy. So that is it. That's what I've got for you. Hopefully you found this episode informative. Hopefully those of you that have been listening to the Physionic podcast uh, aren't too disappointed by the fact that I'm not releasing five days a week anymore. Uh, I also noticed that the, the, the listenership was decreasing as a result because, I again, the quality was definitely decreasing. So I think that this format wherein I get to just bloviate on, on a series of different topics uh, is, well, more fun for me. It's a higher quality single piece of content. And based off of some of my discussions with people that I do know that listen to the podcast, uh, they mentioned that they typically prefer longer uh, podcast episodes because, you know, of commutes or whatever it might be. So the little three minute, you know, six minute uh, episodes weren't really cutting it, which I completely get. As a matter of fact, I'm the exact same way. So I, I prefer longer podcasts specifically. Anyway, that's what I've got for you. Thanks for tuning in. I really deeply appreciate it. And uh, on to the rest of 2020. I hope that you have a wonderful start to your 2020. And uh, I will catch you next week. Have a good one. Bye.